Hi, Hi, this is Sarah. Sarah. And this is Dan. And And we'd like to welcome you to Pew. And on this episode of the Courageous Parents Network podcast. Nah, just kidding. Sorry to disappoint, but it's Pew Pal. A podcast about all things ours alone and not the only one out there. And it is our privilege to include three parents from the Courageous Parents Network to tell us about how their stories have interwoven with palliative care. You might recognize one or perhaps even all three of the following names. We'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Amy Graver, and I'm the parent of Lauren Graver. Um, Lauren is uh, my third of four children. She also happens to be a twin, and she was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma when she was seven years old passed away at 10 years old, and I got involved with Courageous Parents Network, and I'm currently a blogger in residence and a consultant for CPN. And my name is Liz Morris. I am the parent of Colson. Colson lived with mitochondrial disease until he was four years old. We received a palliative care referral when he was seven months old uh, and were uh, connected to Courageous Parents Network very shortly thereafter. Um, Given that Colson was my only child, I have now thrown myself into work, uh, both as an advisor with Courageous Parents Network, as well as a medical librarian with the National Library of Medicine. And I am Blythe Lord. I am mother of three daughters. My second daughter, Cameron, was diagnosed with infantile Tay-Sachs when she was five and a half months old. Shortly after her cousin, my nephew, was diagnosed with infantile Tay-Sachs. She died at the age of two. And our experience uh, was really the seed of my starting Courageous Parents Network, which I began in 2014 and am the executive director of Courageous Parents Network. I didn't realize until just now that that means Courageous Parents Network is about to turn 10. I know. It freaks <laughs> me <funny>. out. <laughs> really. Yeah. I left my job to start thinking about it 10 years ago this coming April. So I'm wondering if... And I know this will look very different for all three of you. You can each touch a little bit on your first introduction to the concept of pediatric palliative care, either as a team or as a specialty. If you had heard of it before, how it was first described to you or how the team even went and described themselves, how they introduced themselves when you first met them. So when my daughter received palliative care from her primary care pediatrician, uh, this was in 2000, 2001, before palliative care, pediatric palliative care was what it is, has become now, thankfully. Our primary care doctor was also our daughter, our older daughter's pediatrician, and he delivered the diagnosis. He did anticipatory guidance with uh, us. He had goals of care conversations with us. He supported us when we transitioned to Cameron's end of life. And I just thought we were receiving the type of care that I would have expected from a pediatrician. I didn't know any differently. And it was only about a year later when my husband and I were reflecting on what we might do to honor our daughter and her cousin, our nephew, and what we could support with money that we had raised in their name that uh, somebody said, well, you received palliative care. We're like, palliative care? What's that? I thought we just got primary care. 
And uh, they said, well, this is, he's a primary care pediatrician who functionally provided palliative care. And then they told me about um, the work that Joanne Wolf was, the program she was building at Boston Children's Hospital. And it went from there, at which point I became passionately committed to what was then a burgeoning specialty and really promoting palliative care to families who were going through it now. This is Liz. So one of the things that really struck me as Blythe was speaking was this notion of palliative care as a specialty. Um, So our experience with palliative care came many, many years after Blythe and her family's experience when pediatric palliative care had really been more established as a specialty. Um, and there were, you know, many more, I think, palliative care teams and providers and in hospitals. And we were referred to palliative care when Colson was seven months old. He had been symptomatic for mitochondrial disease from birth and confirmed via genetic testing at four months old. His neurologist was um, one of many specialists that we were seeing, and when his infantile spasms were not responsive to first line and second line and third line (laughs) treatments, she very gently made a palliative care referral for our family. And I kind of immediately reacted to that because I am one of the many, many, many people who conflated palliative care with hospice care. And I immediately bristled and said, well, aren't those the people who deal with advanced directives? And she very kindly and gently said, yes, that is a part of their scope of work, but also here's all the other things that palliative care can do for you. And she really framed it. She really framed palliative care as an opportunity for our family unit, myself and my husband, um, to think critically and compassionately and deeply about what we wanted for our lives and for our son's life. And similar to Blythe, I had an assumption that like, well, isn't that what all doctors are doing? Isn't that what everybody is doing with us in every encounter? Um, And so to realize that it was really its own practice was both empowering and and a little challenging, frankly, to realize that that extra layer was not embedded in the dozen other specialty clinics that we were seeing. And my situation and experience had commonalities with both Liz and Blythe, but it was still still different. So my daughter, Lauren, was diagnosed. Um, we, we took her to the pediatrician on a Monday morning for a nine o'clock appointment. My husband took her, never takes our kids really to to doctor appointments, but I had an appointment downtown that day. He took her and um, within five hours, we were meeting with an oncologist to talk about the the tumor in her abdomen. And um, she was experiencing such pain in the next, from, from that day, from that Monday through Wednesday, the, the pain just kind of got out of control. And um, the oncologist, we had met with the oncologist and then we were inpatient but we weren't getting the kind of pain relief that that she needed. So I escalated the the issue to her her nurses, to the residents, to anybody who would listen. And they said that you'll be seeing somebody from pain management come. So Dr. Aaron Flanagan showed up and gave Lauren some some pain relief. And um, only then did I kind of understand that she was part of this this specialty team. like Liz, I associated it with with hospice care and 
in my head started to to panic and freak out a little bit, like, what are they not telling us? But then uh, Aaron helped kind of calm me down, like, we're just going to do pain and symptom management. And, and then she can, she continued to do that. As a, as a result of the partnership that Lauren and Aaron had, and that Aaron and Dan, my husband, Dan, and I had, I'm really proud to say that palliative care is now a starter for, for any child diagnosed with pediatric cancer at the, at the children's hospital that Lauren got care at, right at diagnosis, palliative care is involved. So that's a, just a super, just an amazing legacy for her. In line with Lauren's legacy, in line with Blythe, what you're sharing, when you hear about these families or meet these families or talk to these families who haven't interacted with a pediatric palliative care team yet, how do you introduce it or how do you plant that suggestion? (laughs) Palliative care just makes everything better. (laughs) Well, I mean, I do actually start with that. And then I use some of the more traditional language, like an extra layer of support. They coordinate all of the specialists on your child's team. They have conversations with you about what it is you are hoping for for your child that will inform the decisions that you are making or will make. They help you prioritize good days and what, and they will help you feel like you are being the best parent you can possibly be for your child during this extraordinarily difficult time. I also mentioned that they specialize in pain and symptom management, which I know, for example, in Amy's case with Lauren, is for many patients, um, for many children and their parents, the first introduction to palliative care is for pain and symptom management. My daughter never experienced significant pain as far as we know. So for me, that wasn't what resonated. For me, it was about the communication and the anticipatory guidance and the the accompanying and the focus on quality of life as opposed to length of life. So that's what I really held. That's what was in the foreground for me. And that's what I tend to lead with. But I know, of course, that pain and symptom management is a huge thing because, as Amy says, nothing matters until your child is not in pain. My immediate reaction internally when you brought that up was palliative care does make everything better, but it doesn't make everything okay, right? We're going from worst case scenario to like worst case scenario, but we're not feeling totally, completely alone, adrift all the time. Um, So palliative care does make things better, but it doesn't make it okay because let's assume that when palliative care is being brought in, it's because a child has a condition for which the likely trajectories are potentially death, um, being disabled, or being chronically, critically ill and discomforted for a long period of time. Like, there's no great pathway here. Um, And I think what palliative care does and what organizations like CPN do is to allow parents and families to understand that people have been through this before and people have survived this. And when I mean survived, I don't necessarily always mean physically, but like, psychologically, spiritually, like this is the hardest thing you will ever do. And we can help you see a little bit further down the road um, and, and give you the tools to survive. I'm thinking about these stories and experiences following that initial bristling that was described. Blythe, maybe not for you, but for you, Liz and Amy, that bristling of 
palliative care, the person I'm about to see or have been seeing is a palliative care doctor, does that mean something has changed, something is worse? I'm wondering if there is anything that the team said in addressing that concern that was reassuring? I think, you know, when we were referred to palliative care, as I mentioned, he was, Colson was seven months old and his seizures had not responded to treatment, but that was one of many things that was going on with him. So he had also been diagnosed with failure to thrive. He had chronic uh, metabolic acidosis. He was hypotonic. He was losing his vision due to optic atrophy. Like in the very, very first weeks and couple months of his life, because Mito is kind of a spectrum disorder, there was a lot of like, it could be really mild. We don't really know coming from his clinicians. And that was helpful and hopeful at the time. But what the referral to palliative care said to me, and also everything I was observing with my eyes, was this is not going to be a mild case. This is not going to be a mild case. This is going to be a severe case. And this is just going to keep getting worse. Nobody said that to me. It was kind of up to me to put the pieces together because none of his specialists could or would prognosticate with us. It was really up to me to prognosticate. And justifiably, I think in many ways, when I kind of pushed them on that, they would say, you know, we just don't have the data. His mutation has only been identified in one other family. You know, we just don't have good data for what this specific version of mitochondrial disease looks like, so we can't prognosticate okay, what palliative care was willing and able to do with me was say, yeah, we don't have the data on this mutation, but we have data on severe neurological impairment. We have data on kids with complex metabolic illnesses. Here is kind of some benchmarking or things we know from these populations that you might want to be thinking about. And that ability to kind of benchmark and have a little bit of a reference point, even if it wasn't a roadmap, but just kind of some things that might be coming down the pike was so helpful. And that was what palliative care provided to us. Because otherwise, with a spectrum, with a degenerative spectrum disorder like Mito, as a parent, you're just left flying, you know, by the seat of, I mean, we're all flying by the seat of our pants, but really like, are we talking five, five months or five decades with this? I don't know. So that was really a great support from palliative care. Can I, I I just have to jump in here because I love that answer so much. And because we hear in the conversations that we have with parents at CPN, when children are diagnosed with rare conditions where it is difficult to prognosticate, and I think this is probably even more typical in the NICU, and we interviewed a a NICU mom recently, and this was her experience. The diagnosis was so rare, and there was very little known about what was likely to happen to this child specifically, but all of the complications that came with his condition and his extra genetic material suggested that there was going to be severe neurological impairment, difficulty breathing, pulmonary issues, fine and gross motor skill issues. And the specialists were reluctant to talk about the future because they couldn't be specific to the diagnosis. But when palliative care came on the scene, the doctor literally, exactly as Liz said, said, I don't know the specifics of this, but I 
do know what serious neurological impairment typically means. And I can help you anticipate the types of decisions that are coming your way and locate the issues and what you might anticipate. And he helped her connect the dots instead of the parents floundering around trying to get their bearings in the absence of any bearing for them. So I get that nobody wants to take away hope, but palliative care doesn't take away hope. But people think clinician, some specialists fear that a referral to palliative care will take away hope, or they fear that if they start helping parents anticipate the complications, they will be taking away hope, whereas palliative care clinicians are trained that that is not what they are doing when they accompany parents in the work. And there's a thing that comes to mind for me as we think about prognosticating and which providers and when are kind of helping us as parents get our bearings. I will speak for myself, but also know that I'm probably speaking for most parents out there, which is our default mode when our kids are sick is we are always going to do the absolute most that we can until someone gives us permission to rethink that or reevaluate that. We will throw everything at our disposal to try to help our kids and try to help them get on a, air quotes, typical, healthy path developmentally and physically. We need somebody to give us permission to say, hey, you can actually think about this a different way. Um, And here's why. So for example, I remember, you know, when Colson, who was completely non-mobile, unable to even hold his own head up, um, we got a stander when he was about 18 months old and the wonderful PT and OT were like, an hour a day. That was the aspirational goal. And palliative care was like, yeah, I mean, if that's good for you, like if that if that allows you to do all the other things you want to do in a day with him, sure, target an hour a day, but like you're not going to be harming him or taking skills away from him, you know, by not doing an hour a day. So just that permission, like all of your different providers are going to give you different recommendations about the best things you could be doing. And when your kid is sick, you eventually have to calibrate and titrate around that. And so palliative care gives permission to think differently about all those pieces. I wonder, Blythe or Amy, if you remember what permission sounded like or felt like to you when you were given it. Yeah, I remember during Lauren's relapse. So she had relapsed after a year of of chemo and her weight was going down a lot. When she was diagnosed, she was 65 pounds. Now she was like 44 pounds. And she was on TPN about, I think we were at eight hours a day. And she was vomiting every night. She shares a room with her sisters. She she didn't want to be in there because she was embarrassed. She We had just bought all new bedding from a, a cancer wish foundation. And, and she just didn't want to soil anything in that room. So she was sleeping with us. So as a result, we weren't sleeping at all because she'd throw up in the middle of the night and then... I still can picture this. Dan is awake. I'm awake. Lauren's fallen back asleep, but then we weren't getting any sleep. And so I went into the clinic, you know, one of the following days and I said, I think we really have to think about like how we can get the vomiting under control. I feel like she's on TPN and then she throws it all up and we're not seeing any value. So the oncology team's like, well, what if we slowed the TPN down and what if we increased it to 12 to 16 hours a day? And Lauren was still in school. 
And I said, how is she going to go to school with that backpack on? Like how I can't manage that. And they're like, she's still in school. I was like, how do you not know this about her? And so I went to Aaron and I said, I know they're, I know, I think they're going to talk about a feeding tube. I can feel it. I can sense it. And I think that's what's coming. And I said, if we could just solve for the vomiting, I think, I think we could change things. And I remember Aaron saying, we'll, we'll figure it out. She went down the hall, talked to the pediatric psychiatrist. She talked to somebody else. She came back with three prescriptions for us. I always felt like oncology was solving for tomorrow and palliative care was solving for today. Palliative care was helping my daughter get to school, to hang out with her friends, to be as normal as she could given her diagnosis. But Erin knew she was in school. Erin knew that TPN wasn't, a, a a 16 hours of TPN wasn't going to work for our family. And she always found a way to fit in what was important to us. I love that so much. It's just, that's such a beautiful example. For me, in our instance, the specific to Cameron, the permissions that we received, the two ones that stand out were the permission to not feed her with artificial nutrition through a feeding tube. We had already decided my husband and I, and actually our brother and sister-in-law too, we had gone to the annual family conference and we'd met a lot of families of children with um, Tay-Sachs. And we had seen lots of different versions of parental decision-making, which was beautiful actually, because it was a non-judgmental community where parents who whose children had been on G-tubes for years and were, you know, six and seven years old with infantile Tay-Sachs and parents of children who had not chosen that and their children had already died and they had come back and were there really to, as Liz said earlier, you know, just to show parents that they could survive. And my husband and I and my brother and sister-in-law, we, based on just what mattered to us most, happened to all the four of us decided the same thing for our children, which is that we did not want to extend their lives with the feeding tube because the neurological decline was so aggressive with infantile Tay-Sachs that we didn't think that to us, it would not be a quality of life for us. So the first, we actually were very proactive. We said to our pediatrician, we will not be giving our daughter a feeding tube and he nodded and he never pushed back on that at all. And tremendous credit to him for that. He never suggested that she should have a swallow study because once he knew we weren't going to have a feeding tube, what was the point of a swallow study? Um, He had told us she would begin aspirating and there would be aspiration pneumonias. And we knew that was what we were signing up for. And he allowed us to treat those pneumonias at home. He made it possible to treat her pneumonias at home because he also gave us permission not to go to the hospital. Um, When she started having bad seizures, uh, she had multiple pneumonias. We treated all of them until the last one. And he came to the house because he happened to live very close to us. And he said, "Um, she does have pneumonia. And I can go back to the office and get her pneumococcal and the things that we can do to treat this pneumonia. And we said to him, we don't want to treat this pneumonia. Um, 
this is this is her baseline is such that it's time now. Um, my nephew had already died and we had been through that and we knew we were coming to the end of her life and we felt that this was the this was the moment and he was willing as a pediatrician not to treat her pneumonia and he did not push us and he allowed us to keep her comfortable and die at home um, officially from the pneumonia, but really, of course, from the Tay-Sachs. So I'm hearing a lot of common threads, obviously, in the in the things that all three of you have said. And I want to try and pull this together in a way. As Liz was saying, palliative care can give permission to focus on the non-medical things and to focus on the things that are important for a child's development and uh, that are that are on a parent's mind, right? It gives you permission to think about prognosis in a way that a parent would, and it gives you permission to, um, you know, to kind of be in parent mode. And that's something that I'm seeing in what everyone's saying here in a way, Amy talking about the ability to go to school, right? And to allow your child to be your child and to be a parent. And, and similarly, Blythe, like having the permission to stay home, having the autonomy to decide whether to treat or not to treat, the autonomy to decide when the time has come for dying is such a sacred thing that a parent can have in their role as a parent. And I guess what I'm trying to pull together here is this idea that maybe part of what palliative care is doing is reinforcing the or strengthening or bolstering or supporting or I'm not exactly sure what word to use here, but like helping out somehow the parental role like your identity as a parent. And I see Blythe is very enthusiastic about this idea. And so I'm I'm probably unwittingly uh, just quoting from something I read on CPN. But um, but I, I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Your, you, like your role as parents, your identity as parents, and how palliative care interacted with that. May I share an anecdote that is very meaningful to us? So the day Colson died, uh, it was the first time that we had ever had to hospitalize him for a respiratory infection. He was just over four. He had never had a respiratory infection. We were frankly shocked. Um, and he was very, very, very stable when we got him to the hospital. He kind of got on, on BiPAP and all signs indicated like he's where he needs to be. We're going to probably beat this. It'll be great. I was sitting in his PICU room with him after we'd been there for several hours and his palliative care doctor came in and I was in medical mom mode. And so I was kind of berating myself and saying like, well, he didn't have a fever. So I didn't think he had an infection. So I didn't get him in sooner. And like I'd been doing his cough assist and he only started having a heavy cough this morning, but shoot, maybe I should have brought him in last night. Like I was doing all the medical thinking I was beating myself up and she just looked me in the eye and she said, I can't take that feeling from you, but I can offer you a different perspective. And she gave me the perspective of just a great mom. She said, you are so in tune with this kid. You know exactly what he needs when he needs it. You got him here when you felt like it was the right time. And that is what an amazing mom does. And at the time, because we thought Colson was going to go home from this, I was just like, oh, girl, you're so nice. Like, you're making me feel better. 
he was dead within a matter of hours. And that permission, that space that she held for me to just let myself be a mom and let myself have credit for just being a good mom and getting my kid where he needed to be. I hold onto that like a lifeline when I think about his death because she saw me as a mom and celebrated me as a mom. And that was so, so, so powerful. Liz's story makes me cry actually. And I've heard it before, uh, you know, cause that's all we have at the end, right? We don't remember it, the, all the pokes and prods, um, those things are going to fade. And what we're going to remember is the time our child had with us in their family. And even God willing, if the child is living um, and living, you what you remember is the living and the living isn't the treating and the the medicalization part of it. That's not what we remember unless we have trauma, medical trauma and a great antidote or preventative prophylactic strategy against medical trauma is what Liz described, which is fostering the good parent beliefs. And I love the work of Pamela Hines and that's been expanded on by Megan Weaver and others to to look at how to how clinicians can foster good parent beliefs. It's the art of medicine, not the science part. I'm recalling when Lauren probably had a, another year left to her life, and I had met Aaron in the hall when I was going to get Lauren lunch, and I said, "How how is this going to work? Like the scans haven't been great. They they weren't as good as they were. They're just kind of neutral." I have a feeling that oncology team just doesn't want to tell me the truth or they they don't think I'm ready for the truth or am I thinking about this wrong? Like, I don't like where this is going. And Erin said, I don't like where it's going either. And she said, I think Lauren would benefit from a really honest conversation about death. I think she's thinking about it. I think she's thinking about it more than you know. And I'm like, I can't. There's no way. Nope, I can't do it. I can't do it. And she said, you can do it. And I said, how am I going to do that? I don't know how to do that. And she said, I know you and I know you can do this. You will know the right time. And I said, I, I don't believe you. I don't think there's ever going to be a right time where I can honestly have a conversation with her about death. And just her telling me, you will know. I know you and you will know. And it was probably weeks later, and we happened to be in the clinic. Lauren's twin sister was there. My husband, Dan, who I usually did the, the clinic part so he could take care of everything and everybody else. He happened to be on a, an appointment in the area. He stopped by, and they started to ask Dan about his mom, who had died the year after we were married, and just kind of out of the blue. And so we started to talk about death and what we think happens when you die. And I just thought, this is it. I think this is it. Aaron said I would know. And I I know that this is it. This is when we're going to talk about it. And Aaron happened to just walk in. That was her day in the clinic. And so I said, hey, we were just talking about, you know, death. And Aaron just kind of like nodded and smiled like, you know, you you got it. You got the day. And it was this conversation that I thought would be, I mean, it was certainly a very hard conversation, but it was also a very 
freeing and liberating conversation. And it freed Lauren to ask those kind of questions. It freed Emma up to ask those kind of questions. And something changed in Lauren that day. Like, I want to get stuff done. I want to go play a musical instrument. I, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. And started to write a bucket list of things that she wanted to do. And Erin told me I would know. And I didn't believe her, but I'm so glad she believed enough in me. That's such an important sentiment and something I've never, that's a way I've never really thought about this before, because we get trained to offer the parents praise for being good parents. That's definitely part of, you know, what my mentors told me to do. And we get trained to support parents. And that's part of the language around palliative care. But the thing that you're saying now, believe in the parents, have faith in the parents, that's not a way I've thought about it before. And that seems like a very important way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the that's the love part. I mean, I'm getting all mushy, but really, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? It really is. When you love somebody, you do the very, very, very best you can for them. And, you know, part of my growth at Courageous Parents Network has been about learning that parents who choose every intervention under the sun and extend their child's life far beyond what I would think is what I would have chosen. And I have met some of these parents. The early days, me would definitely judge them, definitely judge them. You're making your child suffer. But I... I see it so differently now. There's a just a halo effect of love. And I know it's much more difficult for the clinical staff because they don't love that child, right? You can't love all the children. You, and you are focusing on what's happening to the child physically. So I get that it's much, much harder. Maybe to pull some of those threads that Dan pulled earlier and start to braid them together a little bit with some of the things we've just talked about. I hear that key is to trust the parent to know what is best for them and their family and their child in the context of their love, or what we might even call their values and their goals, but really in the context of that love. Absolutely. I think that something parents hear a lot from clinicians and providers is, you know your child best. And sometimes that is said as an encouraging thing. And sometimes that is said as a like, let's kick this ball down the road a little further. Like, you know your child best. And so if clinicians are going to say that to parents, they have to really, really believe it. And I think that palliative care clinicians are so phenomenal at believing it and understanding that that knowledge is love. They're phenomenal at believing it and making you believe it in yourself. So you know that you know your child best, but when you hear it from your palliative care doctor that you know them best, trust yourself. That's so empowering. It's so uplifting. It's so reassuring. You know it, but to have it emphasized by your clinician is incredible. Mm -hmm. I cannot think of a better place for this conversation to have gotten to than love. And it is not where I thought this conversation was going at all. None of our questions have the word love in them. And 
I'm reflecting on the fact that when I do my consults, when I do my initial consults, I don't usually ask about love, but I guess I kind of do actually without realizing it. So now maybe I'm realizing it. I'm so glad that this is where we got to. All right, listeners, we're going to let you behind the curtain a little bit. Dan and I have been sitting here for probably about 20 or 30 minutes talking and trying to figure out how to end this episode and struggling with what kind of reflection to make and should we even make some sort of unifying reflection about what we just heard. Yeah, what what you're not hearing is dozens of minutes of us trying to come up with some commentary and then stopping midway through and saying this feels uncomfortable, it feels wrong, we can't use that. So in very palliative care fashion, we are now kind of speculating on why that is and why we feel that discomfort. I mean, I think a big thing about what we both do is to honor the stories of families that we talk to, to really make that story the focus. And it feels a little disingenuine for us to take a step back and then try and talk about ourselves and our own process in the same episode, though I realize we do it in other episodes in other ways. It's true. And I think some of this is the discomfort we have that we both have with the solipsism of podcasting which is like we are sending our own voices out into the ether for all of you to listen to. And like, who are we to do that, right? Who am I to listen to what Joanne Wolf has to say and then add my own commentary to that? And I think even more so, who am I to do that after a parent tells me their story about their child, right? I don't do that at the bedside. You know, when I'm participating in a consult, I don't then turn around and offer, well, let, let me let me add my own commentary here. Which is not to devalue the beauty of debriefing and what that looks like, but in the vein of everything we've just said, we want to remind our listeners of what we hinted at at the beginning, which is the Courageous Parents Network has their own podcast. It's wonderful. It's on the CPN website. You all know how to find it, but we'll link it in our show notes just in case. And we highly recommend everybody go and take a listen. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can follow us on Twitter, where our username is at PDPal. You can find the notes for this podcast and all of our episodes on pdpal.org. If you'd like to submit thoughts, objections, or ideas for future episodes, please reach out via the email on our website. This has been PDPal. We'll see you next month. Oh, nice. That's very self-deprecating. And that might be just what we need. That's our style. I mean, it is very much our style. <laughs> it's not a it's not a good style. It's probably the worst style. I want to say it's gotten us this far, but I don't know what this far means because <laughs> we <laughs> just put these up into the ether and hope people listen to them. We are true to ourselves because we're being self-deprecating about being self-deprecating. So we've, we've come full, not circle, some no. sort of less functional shape. It's been... <laughs> we've come full, full boomerang. <laughs> exactly. And hit ourselves in the face. Mm-hmm.